So 13 years ago this month, I took a trip with a friend of mine to Paris, Kentucky. I have now been to two different cities named Paris. Neither one of them were anything close to Paris, France, I'm guessing. So the people were friendly. Um, We went to Paris, Kentucky for a three-day-long prayer meeting focusing on repentance and revival, both personal repentance as well as corporate repentance, national repentance, and personal revival as well as national revival. The meeting was held in the Cane Ridge Meeting House, which is a log cabin. It is, as my understanding, the largest one-room log structure in the country, if not the world. I can't remember exactly if it's just the country or the world, but it's a large one-room meeting house. And the occasion that week in, uh, in August 2001 was a remembrance and a celebration of the 200th anniversary of the Cane Ridge Revival and a passionate plea with God, Lord, bring another Cane Ridge. 213 years ago, Kentucky was the wild frontier back then. That was, that was the frontier. And, and life was rough. You depended on your neighbors. You depended upon your family. You had to take care of each other. You had to stand together. And preachers were few and far between. Yay. You know, there weren't that many preachers out there. And so church was done a little bit differently. And churches would get together from time to time and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so in August of 1801, in Cane Ridge, the Presbyterian church there prepared a weekend-long communion celebration led by their preacher, a guy by the name of Barton W. Stone. Communion then, again, it was very different than it is today. Uh, It was not weekly. It was held whenever they could, whenever they could get together and, and have an occasion. And it was a community event and so the Cane Ridge Church invited all the neighboring churches. They, they, were, they invited Baptists, they invited Methodists, they invited all the neighboring churches to come together and join them for this weekend-long celebration. And with all the other churches coming, they thought maybe they would have somewhere between 20 and 30 families show up to take communion. Well, what happened was far beyond anyone's expectations, but was not beyond God's power. Because that hot weekend in August, somewhere between twenty and 30,000 people showed up for that service. And they came from different backgrounds. They came from different denominations. They held to different creeds. But they came to worship, and they came united in one common belief. And that is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that that's what united them. So the church you're sitting in today traces its heritage, in part, back to that revival. Here we are 213 years later, and there are thousands of churches all across the country, all across the world, uh, that trace our heritage back to that revival and those early frontier Christians and the freedom and the faith that they found together. So when we ask a question like, why do we do it like that? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we 
take communion like we do? Why do we believe the things that we believe? The answer can be kind of complicated. Why do we celebrate communion every week? Why is that an important part of of who we are? Why do we emphasize baptism by immersion? Why do we emphasize a local leadership as opposed to having a denominational head that, that oversees our congregation? Every one of those answers, I believe, can be found in Scripture. I think we can look back to Scripture and, and see the answers for every one of those. But we have to admit, and it would be wrong for us to deny, that we have a very rich history that goes back to those early frontier Christians. A very rich history that goes back to men like Barton Stone and others, and it would be wrong for us to deny their influence upon us. It's an important part of of who we are. It's an important part of our history, and I think it's an important part of our future as well. Deep in the history of our church is a desire that we still have today, a desire for unity in the church. I tend to think of myself as a realist, a, a Christian realist. You know what a realist is? Well, you you know what an optimist and a pessimist is, right? The optimist looks at the glass and he says, well, it's half full. And the pessimist looks at the glass and says, well, it's half empty. Uh, The realist, like me, says, your glass is too big. You You need a smaller glass. You'd be better off with a smaller glass. So I want logical answers to things. I want practical answers. And, And I read the story of what happened 200 years ago there at Cane Ridge, and I I see a miracle. I mean, I see a revival. I see a mighty move of the Spirit of God. But I also, the realist in me also recognizes that there were other forces that came into play that weekend. But God brought those forces together in an amazing and miraculous way. One thing you have to agree upon is our nation was ripe for revival in those days. And so is our world. In fact, revival had already begun. You may have heard of the revival they call the Great Awakening. This, the Great Awakening was happening out east. The Great Awakening was happening in Europe. It was happening in Great Britain. Churches were filled. I remember the, the story of the Welsh revival during those times. The police in Wales had nothing to do because there were no criminals. Everybody was in church. And so the police in Wales, they formed a choir. <laughs> decided that they would spend their time singing instead. This amazing revival was taking place all around the world. And and churches were packed. People were weeping and repenting. And America had just survived into its independence. We had just kind of taken control of ourselves and stood for who we were. And, And now, already in the early 1800s, there was this stirring of this desire for the abolition of slavery, the desire to recognize uh, people in, in, in who, for who they are and, and to, to recognize the freedom that we have. And out there on the frontier, you had to rely on your faith to get you through. You had to rely on your community. And it didn't matter if your neighbor was a Methodist or your neighbor was a Baptist. It didn't matter who those people were. You, you called on your neighbors. You called on your friends. Now, the realist in me says that was a big problem (laughs) because these churches out here on the frontier meeting in little log cabins like Cane Ridge, those churches were still controlled by the denominational heads back in New England. And those denominational heads out there, they told them what they could do and what they couldn't do, who they could worship with and who they couldn't, and how they could fellowship and how they shouldn't fellowship. And on top of all of that, those denominational heads back there in New England, 
they wanted a cut of the offering. And they wanted them to send their money back, and they used that money to build beautiful big churches out in New England while people out on the frontier were meeting in cold, dark log cabins. And I have a feeling that after a while, that just didn't set right with all those people in Kentucky. That just didn't set right with those people on the, on the frontier. So what happened at Cane Ridge was a glorious absence of division. These people crossed denominational borders. They saw God moving in all groups. And so they asked the question, why can't it always be like this? Why shouldn't it always be like this? And the desire became to bring unity to the church, to bring one foundation, to stand together as one, just as Jesus had intended for us to stand together. What would be the foundation? What would we stand together upon? What, where would they find the unity that would provide them with the structure they needed, as well as a focus for the future? It's not just about where we stand today, but where are we going? And so it's what we continue to strive for today, that somehow we might be able to restore the church to the New Testament example. And I want you to understand what I'm giving you here. I, I want to call it a quick and dirty history. <laughs> Of, the, of who we are, but the reality is it's a quick and clean history because I've cleaned it up a lot. It, as simple as it all sounds, there was a lot more arguing involved than I have time to explain and a lot more personalities involved. So while all this is happening out in Kentucky, back in Virginia, God was at work uh, with a father and son team of preachers by the name of Thomas and Alexander Campbell. They were from Scotland. They were Presbyterians. And they were growing more and more disheartened by the divisions in the church. In fact, it's not enough to say that they were part of the Presbyterian church because that's just where it started. They were Presbyterians, but their church had divided. There were two distinct groups of Presbyterians in, 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 their, in their situation there. There was the seceder Presbyterians who believed that local congregations ought to choose their own preacher which sounds like a great idea to me. Local congregations ought to be in charge of that. So there was the seceders that believed that, and there was the anti-seceders that believed that someone else should choose the preacher for the congregation. So they were seceder Presbyterians. Except that doesn't cover it all, because you see there was this other group of Presbyterians uh, that believed that the burghers, <laughs> burghers were political officials, local officials, um, government officials, who they felt like they ought to decide whether we're going to be a seceder church or not. The government ought to tell us whether we can be a seceder church or whether we're not going to be a seceder church. And so there were the pro-burgers and there were the anti-burgers. Normally, I am pro-burger. You guys know that very well. But in this particular case, they were anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterians. Except that doesn't cover it all either because there was this other division between what was known as the old light anti-burger seceder presbyterians and the new light anti-burger seceder presbyterians the new light anti-burger seceder presbyterians said that the westminster confession which every presbyterian had to agree upon was the most important thing that there was and that scripture simply shed new light on the westminster confession whereas the old light anti-burger seceder presbyterians said that scripture should stand as our foundation and so the campbells were part of the old light anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian church. Was there any room left on your building to write anything else, you know? 
You gonna, what else are you going to put on your sign? Old Light, Anti-Burger, Seceder, Presbyterian. Every name, every one of those distinctions is a division. Someone you didn't agree with, and you had to go start a new church because you didn't agree with that person. You know that, That's what the word denomination means, by the way. You realize that. Denomination, to divide by name. That's what that word means. And so the Campbells ended up coming to the United States, and they began teaching that, that this was wrong, that, that we should all get together, that, that we should find what we have in common, that we should get, do away with these divisions, and that we should all stand together. And they were promptly fired. Uh, <laughs> you can't do that. And so they, they struck out on their own to, uh, to try something new. They, they said, this is enough division. So Campbell had this idea that the problem with churches was all the extra man-made stuff, denominational divisions, different creeds, different practices. And the idea was, what if we just went back to the Bible? And what if we found all the things that we can agree upon? And what if we built our church upon those things? So they went back to passages like Acts chapter 2, which is on page 912 in those Bibles in the pews. But they went back to passages like Acts chapter 2, and they saw this very simple primitive expression of the Christian faith. Now, we're going to look at verses 42 through 47 and realize this is the very first expression of the church. This is what they all began to do after Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, after 3,000 people respond and are baptized. When the church first became the church, what did they do? And you read in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse um, beginning in verse 40. And then continue on to verse 47. Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon everyone, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, I want you to notice something important about this passage. There's not a single command in those verses. It's not a single command anywhere in those verses. Nothing says, if you're a church, you must devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. Thou shalt devote thyselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. That, that doesn't happen there. There's nothing like that there. It simply tells us what they did. It simply tells us how they came together, what they focused on. And maybe more importantly to, to Campbell's perspective, no one told them how to do it. No one told them how to be a church. There's a simplicity in this passage that, that appealed to them, a simplicity that continues to appeal to us. And so the idea was to restore the ancient order of things, to restore those early Christian expressions and practices. And if we all build upon those things, maybe we could restore the unity of the church. And so men like Thomas and Alexander Campbell and, and Barton Stone 
came together and eventually formed what was known as the Restoration Movement. It was a call to unite all believers under those very simple beliefs and those very simple expressions of the early church we find in the New Testament. They had to call themselves something. I mean, they had to call their church something. They tried different names. They, they thought of different things. And some people were calling them Campbellites because they were followers of the Campbells. And they didn't like that. They didn't like that term because it was a man-made term and it elevated the man instead of elevating Christ. They didn't like being called Campbellites. No one called them stoners, but maybe they could have. I don't know. That probably wouldn't have been a good idea either if they called them stoners. So they, they wondered what they should call themselves, and they finally decided, let's, let's just call ourselves Christians. I mean, it doesn't matter what denomination, what group you're affiliated with, what flavor of Christianity you are, whether you're a Lutheran, whether you're a, a Baptist, whether you're a Methodist, whatever you are, Presbyterian, anything, we all agree upon one name, don't we? We agree upon the name Christian, right? So let's just call ourselves Christians. And they said, they said things like, we are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. That's the only name that we accept. And I think that's important because, you see, the, the Restoration Movement was about more than just restoring the New Testament church. The Restoration Movement is about restoring relationships between Christians, about finding a place where we can agree with each other, finding a place where we can begin because we were dividing and we continue to divide over and over again over our differences. It's about restoring fellowship between churches because the reality is we have more in common with each other than we do that which divides us and that which keeps us apart. So let's build on what we have in common. And the very first thing we have in common is Christ. So let's simply call ourselves Christians. That is something I truly believe in. That is something I will preach until, the, until my dying day. I, I see the logic in that. I see the common sense in this plea for unity and restoration. But I continue to be a realist. And the, as a realist, I also have to take a hard look at the reality of where we are, where we've come. The churches in the restoration movement rallied around some very key slogans. I've already shared one of them with you. We are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. And we're very welcoming, very open with that statement. We're not the only ones who, we don't believe our church is the only church, but we are Christians only. And that was a very important statement. One of my favorite statements in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. In other words, there are some things that are essential to our faith. The lordship of Jesus Christ is essential to our faith. The, the sanctity of, uh, of life is essential to our faith. The sovereignty of God is essential to our faith. We have to recognize those things. The, the plan of salvation is essential to our faith. We have to have unity in those things. But in non-essentials liberty, you know, there's an awful lot of things that are just opinion out there. I, I do my best to avoid preaching that, and, and at times I will stop and say, this is just my opinion, and that's what you're getting. So, it, you know, if you, wanna, if you really want my opinion, buy me a cup of coffee. I'll give you my opinion. Otherwise, I try to avoid that up here. But in some things, they're not essential. You know, the order of the last times, the, the, the plan for for the last days, you know, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, you know, anti-trib, whatever you are, those aren't essential. No one's getting saved because of their view of the tribulation and their view of the second coming. So in those things, we allow liberty. But in all things, even if you don't agree with me, I'm still going to have to love you. 
Because in all things, I still have to express Christ to you, and I still have to express love. So in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things, love. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. I hope we actually do that. You know, I hope we realize that we're not here to give our opinions. We're not here to tell you what we think. We're here to, re- to express what the Bible says. And in the same way, no book but the Bible. We don't have a second book for you to follow here. We don't have a confession that you have to agree to. We have the Bible, and we stand together in the Bible. No creed but Christ. There is no other thing that we have to agree upon other than who Jesus is. So those are very important and foundational statements. And you realize in in those days of division and denomination after denomination, those were radical statements. Those were very radical statements in that world, a world of continued division in the church. 213 years later, here we are. But who are we? What are we like? Well, the sad fact is, this movement that was all about unity and restoration, this movement has divided again and again and again. There are three separate streams to the restoration movement. There are churches like ours, the independent Christian churches. There are the churches of Christ, which some of us have a little bit of heritage in also. I fill in and preach at a church of Christ, the a cappella churches where they do not use instruments. And then there is the denomination of the disciples of Christ. All three of us trace our heritage back through the restoration movement. And along with those three main streams, we also have many subgroups that come into play and many little divisions here and there. And it would be very easy for us to throw our arms up and say, well, that was a nice idea, but it didn't work. You know, let's, let's find something else. It was a nice idea. It, it just didn't work. 213 years later, now, there's some amazing things happening in this world. I mean, if you can believe the polls that are being taken about people in America right now and what's happening to, to their ideas and what's happening to, their, to them spiritually, 84% of American adults, 84%, when asked what your religion is, 84% just say, I'm a Christian. They don't use a denominational name. They don't, use, they don't divide themselves up. And their faith may be nothing more than to say, well, when I was a kid, I was brought to church. And, you know, I remember we went to, we went to church and we were Christians. So that may be all they have, but it's a great place to begin. 84% of American adults say, I am a Christian. Christian only. That's the only name that they choose. 48% of American adults believe that the Bible is an accurate and reliable source of information about our beliefs and about our practices. If we're going to be Christians, then we ought to look at the Bible and see what the Bible says about being Christians. In addition, there is this new generation from 18 to 29-year-olds that we call the millennials, or sometimes we call them the mosaics, and they're saying, we want authenticity. We don't want to do something because that's how we've always done it. We want to understand why we're doing it. We want some reason behind why we do these things and why we believe these things. And it sounds to me like this season is ripe for restoration. People are desiring unity. And we go back and read. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. 
And you realize, today, as we have come together, what have we done? We've devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We have devoted ourselves to fellowship. I saw you. You were shaking hands and hugging each other and loving on each other, which was a wonderful thing. We broke bread together, and we have prayed together. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all so any had, uh, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes and receiving their foods with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You realize there's stuff right there that we can all agree upon. There's stuff that we can all agree that we, we ought to do those things. We ought to devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings. We ought to fellowship with each other. We ought to break bread. We ought to pray. In fact, we've already done those things today. It's something we all want, no matter what flavor of Christianity we may have been brought up with. And I think it is a beautiful place for us to begin. August 2001. 13 years ago this month, I, I went to, to Cane Ridge. I would love to tell you something special happened. I would love to tell you that after three days of praying and, and fasting, that, that something special happened. I mean, I, I wanted revival. I wanted renewal. I wanted to see it. I wanted to feel it. I prayed and fasted. I, the middle of the summer, first part of August, 2001, blazing hot in Kentucky inside a log cabin. I fasted. <laughs> I, I felt it. And the, the hunger, anyway. I, I wanted God to do something. I, 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 plead, I pled with God over and over again. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Do it again. You've done it before. I know you can do it. Do it again. But something just something didn't feel right. That whole weekend, something just did not feel right. I, I can't explain it. I came back home. I wasn't pumped up. I felt kind of hollow. I felt like we missed something in August of 2001. September 2001. Turn on the TV. I watched our world burn. I watched the world fall apart. I saw planes crashing. I saw buildings burning and falling. I saw people die and and I saw our whole nation pray. I saw people gathering together and singing, God bless America. I, I saw something amazing happen. I'm still sorting it out. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what happened and what did I miss. And I'm not claiming any deep spiritual insight. Like I, I, I felt a rumbling in the forest. You know? I'm not giving any of that. But something was wrong at Cane Ridge. And I'm still trying to figure out what I should have been praying about that week. I'm wondering what the lesson was there for me, what I had to learn. We were at the same location, 200 years apart, but in many ways, it was a completely different world. And yet, with all the inconsistencies in this world, the Word of God still stands, doesn't it? The foundation is still there. There are things that concern us. There are things that scare us. There are whims of this world that we don't understand. And yet the foundation is still there. The Word of God still stands. 
we can build on this. More than just building on this, we can stand together on this. It's not just a foundation for your life or, or my life. It's a foundation for the church. It's a foundation that we can all stand together on. It's something we can all believe in. And it's a place for us all to start. So we're going to spend the next few weeks asking the question, why do we do it like that? <laughs> why do we believe the things that we believe? Why do we, why do we take communion every week? You know, why do we put such an emphasis on baptism? Why do we do all of these little things that, that other churches don't do them? Why, why is that an important thing to us? We're going to look at the foundation that's been laid, not just at, at Cane Ridge, but scripturally. The foundation's been laid. But I hope we don't just look backwards. I want us to look ahead and say, what do we offer this world? What do we have for this generation? What foundation can we give them? What can we stand on together? I believe this song that we're going to sing addresses that. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ your Lord. We all begin there. That's our foundation. That's what holds us together. Let's stand together and sing.